Amen, amen. Hey, we're going to spend the lion's share of our time today in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, 1 through 9. We're still continuing through our study on Christian ethics that began back in chapter 5, and, and Paul has given us no short, uh, no small number of difficult and delicate subjects to talk about. Today is no different. Um, and so I, I want us to just have kind of a candid conversation about this. And it, it's going to be difficult for some of us, I think, because it is a topic that not many of us really kind of relish having conversations with other people about this. We want to be kind of alone in, in the quietness of our thoughts uh, to ponder this and kind of think about these things in abstraction, right? But Scripture's really clear, and it gives us just this really bold proclamation of uh, this discussion of sex. But, but I want you to know something. Like, if you came in today, and this is the first time you're here, you're welcome. Um, uh, to church today is my, my welcome uh, to this place today. Justin welcomed you here. Let me add my greeting to that as well. But in 5 through 7, Paul's going through things that are contemporary in the Corinthian culture, things that were real issues for them. And I think if we look at them, there are a lot of things that find, as we kind of walk across this principalizing bridge, that become issues for us, okay, become real and burdensome issues for us. No, I'm not going to touch on the beautiful picture that marriage is portrayed to be. If you look at Ephesians 5, he says that marriage is this picture of the gospel. And so the husband has this role, the wife has this role. If you look at Hebrews 13:4, Paul says that we hold marriage in high regard and, and high honor. But we're really just going to talk about sex today. And so just know all of that other stuff's in there. And I encourage you to read through 1 Corinthians and as a part of your course in Bible reading, you should be reading through Hebrews and reading through uh, Ephesians and elsewhere. And, and some of us today are going to find that this is I mean, just a hard message because of where you are uh, in your marriage or where you are in life. And you think, well, what does this say to me? Or what does this say to me in my situation? And just know that you may not get the answer you're looking for. This may not adequately address everything you came into this room burdened with. But that does not mean, that is not meant to imply that those answers aren't there. It's just this is the section, this is the passage we're walking through. Every passage, every section doesn't hit everything in your life. And that's a good thing. Like we would be exhausted. I would be laying on the floor drooling, saying one more thing, right? And you would, you would be gone by that point and nobody would wake me up. And that would be awkward come Monday morning when the students show up. But if, if you look kind of culturally around, there's an article that came out the last couple of weeks out of Psychology Today, and the argument they made was that, that sex gives meaning to life. And the implication therein becomes that, that a life without sex, without this, this physical act of sex, has no meaning. Now, depending on where you are in your life, if you're, married, if you, if you're in a marriage or you're, or you're single, this hits you in two different places. And so if you're married and you're not engaged in frequent sex, then you say, my marriage has no meaning. And if you're single and you're living according to a biblical ethic, and so you're abstaining from sex until you are married, or you persist and in, in, in continue to be in this state and remain single over the course of your life, then there won't be a time at which your life has meaning if this article is to be believed. Now, according to the biblical sense, we don't derive meaning in our life. I, 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 there's not some more uh, value added to my life because this physical act exists, and I have three kids, and so you know, you know that 
they look like me, and so you're guessing that at some point, Valerie and I probably had sex, and for those of you who are thinking they probably didn't, your pastor dies, and so we know that, that it, sex has taken place. Our kids are here, right? And so, but my meaning of my life, the meaning of her life is not derived on the basis of this, and, and neither are the single people in our midst, are their lives any more valuable because sex does not exist and is not taking place in their lives. But as we kind of broadly begin to think about implications of sex, we know that there are at least three different ways we can look at it. One is kind of in our culture and say that sex with no strings attached is incredibly prevalent. Kind of the idea of the hookup culture and, and sex like handshakes. And so we just kind of meet somebody and we're able to engage in this, this incredibly intimate union with them with absolutely no strings attached. And so when, when the act is over, it's going to kind of see you later. Is This is fun. Maybe we'll do this again. And largely, I would say that our culture contends for this to be the overwhelming uh, presence and manifestation of sex. It's just two people casually engaging in an act. And there is no requirement in this act, no, no mandate for the man to be any more engaged to the woman, the woman be any more engaged than the man, because they're simply just engaged in a good time together. Of course, we know that, that celibacy, now, you don't hear a lot of people talk about celibacy today, but simply the, the persistent sustaining of sex, the persistent sustaining or you know, abstaining of sex over the course of a lifetime. Celibacy is something the Bible talks a terrific amount about, and it's something that largely within our culture that we look at and we say there must be something wrong with them. There must be something deficient in them. They must be missing out on something. Oh, how could they possibly find any value, any hope, any joy in life at all? What's going on with them? Of course, then we come to the biblical picture of marriage and the biblical picture of sex, which is, is full bore, and it's this wonderful thing that God has created sex for two purposes. One would be procreation. Procreation. If, if a man and a woman don't engage in sex outside of you know, medical intervention, our society dies. The most significant way that our society is, is, continues is through natural sex, and so procreation. But the other reason that God has created and has, has de designated and designed sex is for enjoyment, is for pleasure. And so we see it's for procreation, and we see it's also for pleasure. And so Paul writes to this church there in Corinth, and they've had no small understanding on the role of sex in their culture. They look around, and, and they see there in Corinth that, that everyone is engaged in every various manifestation of sex that, that they would desire to, and they would like to, and they'd want to be engaged in, and nobody wants to say anything to anybody. And so this is kind of the surrounding culture around their church. And within their church, you'll know, you'll remember back to chapter 5, that Paul said, look, you've got, you've got a horrific case of incest going on in your church. You have this guy that's sleeping with his stepmom. What's wrong with you? Like lost people in your community don't do this. Pagans in your community don't do, don't do this. But you look at it and say, well, it's, it's okay. We're just, we're just not going to talk about it. We're just going to cover over it. And then he goes down through, and, and a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the idea that some of them within their culture are engaging and sleeping with prostitutes. And so you look at that and say, well, what's going on with that? And we see within the first century, the concept and the understanding was that a marital union, a man to his wife, only existed for procreation. It only existed to create heirs in the relationship. It was there, it existed so that I could have um, a future generation of people that would carry my name, carry on the business, and keep that existence. But pleasure was to be sought outside of the marriage. 
So within first century Corinth, the idea of, of sleeping with a prostitute, sleeping with someone other than your spouse was accepted outside the church culture, okay? And so Paul's gone through and he systematically moved and identified these things. But we recognize that when you got into chapter 6 and 9 through 11, what did he say? He said, do you not know the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. And so he runs through this list. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And everybody in the room raised their hand and said, well, what about me? This list isn't meant to just designate and say we have the good people over here and the bad people over here. This list is created in such a way that everyone is caught, that each of us would say, I, in some sense, find my uh, former self, find my former identity in this list. And Paul said, but this is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that the Son of God has come, that he has died, that he has borne the penalty and the punishment of our sins, of my sin, of your sin, and that he has been raised to life. And on the basis of our faith union with him, we have been washed, we have been sanctified, we have been justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. And we would all say, amen. That we know freedom, that we know release through the sanctifying work of our union to Christ's death. Amen? And so he comes into this passage, and so they're trying to figure out kind of like, what do we look like in our community? And so we see that there are those who are just kind of no strings attached. We see there are those who are going to the prostitutes. We have Jim Bob over here who's sleeping with his stepmom. What do we look like? Ah, I know what we look like. We're going to be the never touch, never have sex with anybody crowd. And so they all begin to kind of move into this understanding of, of persistent celibacy. And so Paul writes and he responds. He says, now concerning the matters about which you wrote. And so we know that this is something that they wrote him. They wrote and said effectively, Paul, what would you think if we all just bailed on sex totally? And we just kind of mandated to the church and said, we are the church where no one has sex. And so Paul weighs in. He says, concerning the matter which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Now, the text literally is telling us it's good not to touch, but we understand that the idea of touching in this is leading to sex. And so their questions effectively we think it's good that none of us should have sex. What do you think about that, Paul? So Paul takes a minute, he, he stutters, he stammers, and then he begins to respond. And he says, hold on a second, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. And he completely upsets the apple cart. You see, within the understanding of the first century and the group of people Paul wrote to, women had, had zero rights. They had zero uh, ability to kind of speak into an issue. They were, in some sense, chattel. They were property. If their husband looked at them and, and counted them worthy, they could extend to them certain other rights, certain other freedoms. But in, in a main sense, children and women had very little in the way of rights in the first century, and especially there in Corinth. So Paul extends over and over and over again an incredibly high regard of women. And he does this all the way through uh, verse 2 through verse 5. Look at how he begins. He says that this, this scenario they've set up for themselves, this idea where no one should have uh, physical relations with one another, sexual relationships with one another, he says it is untenable. It's unmanageable. And why is this? It's not because it's not necessarily a good thing, but he says there is a temptation to engage in sexual immorality. 
And on the basis of the temptation to engage in sexual immorality within the confines of marriage, in essence, he's saying you should have sex. If you are married and you're in this room today and you and your spouse are not having sex, there's likely an issue. There's likely an issue. Now, it could be medical, it could be physiological, it could be emotional, it could be spiritual. But there is some issue if you and your spouse are not engaged. And what does he say here? He says, each man should have his own wife. Look at that. It's an exclusive relationship. It's an exclusive relationship. And so he's already said that you're not to go outside. And he says each man should have, and it's in this present tense. So it gives us the idea that this should be the recurrent, repeated pattern of behavior within the confines of a marriage. If you are married, you should be having frequent sex with your wife. I've got no small number of emails from men asking, now when is that sermon about that? But look how he turns it. He doesn't just say, look, you pig-headed guy. You should be able to have as much sex with your wife as you want. He turns to her and he says, and, and, uh, he says, likewise, each woman her own husband. And so that which he says to the man is that which he says to the woman. So within the confines of marriage, it's this two people becoming one according to Genesis, and they should have one another and one another alone. Christian marriage should be a sex-filled marriage. You know, repeatedly studies indicate that there is less sex within marriage than within singles. And so if you were to take two groups of people and you are to say, we have a group of singles over here and they're engaged in sex, and we have a group of married people over here and they're engaged in sex, what studies will show us over and over again is that the group of married people have less sex. And so it's quantitatively less. But when they move in and they begin to use descriptors and, and they talk about uh, connectedness to your partner and, and, and feelings towards them, what we find is that qualitatively it's better. And so while we're having less sex as married couples than we are as singles, we're having better sex as married than we are as singles. And what Paul is saying is that the idea of quantity should even increase. Each man should have his wife. Each wife should have her husband. Now why? Look at three and four. He says, the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. Now, this, this sounds a little bit like obligation. And we'd say, when has obligation ever been a bad thing, right? But look at what he's talking about here. This idea of conjugal rights, which is how the ESV renders it, what he's talking about is debt. So within the confines of marriage, this is what Paul says. This is what his language communicates. If you are a husband in this room and, you're in, in, and you would look at your spouse and you would look at your wife, you owe her a debt. You owe her a debt. This is Paul's language. And it belongs to her and it belongs to her alone. You owe it to her. And if you are a woman and you're in this room and you think of your husband, you owe him a debt. There is something you owe him. So do you see the wonderful mutuality in there? It's not one person getting to be necessarily in charge of one another. It's not one person holding something over on the other. 
He says the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights. And again, it's this idea that this is a repeated, that this is a recurring pattern of action and behavior. It should not be rare. Within the confines of a Christian relationship and marriage, the, the, the question should never be, when's the last time we had sex? Like, this should be a short conversation for Christians. It shouldn't be, that's a great question. What is it? September the 2nd? Oh, did February have 29 days this year? <laughs> that's always kind of a big deal for us. It's only every four years. Carry the three. It was when your mom was sick. Note, your mom's dead. Okay. But it was when she was sick. It was three years ago. Like, this should never be a conversation that occurs within, uh, with two consenting Christians married to one another. There should never be this digging in depth of saying, when's the last time we had sex? And the other one says, I don't know. Do you think we should tonight? And he says, I, law and order's on. <laughs> Folks, law and order's always on. It's on like every channel every night. <laughs> this is not a good reason. Oh, I've got a headache. Oh, I've got a headache from this conversation. <laughs> Can I tell you that if you wait for the perfect scenario and set of situations to come up, oh, I just want to wait till I, you know, I lose five or six more pounds. You've been losing that same five and six pounds for the last seven years and gaining 20 and 30 in the increments. <laughs> and there are a number of terrific books that are really helpful um, and, and there's stuff we're not going to talk about today. Tim Keller and his wife wrote a book called The Meaning of Marriage that I would heartily recommend to each of you. Uh, we take couples going through premarital counseling through an eight-week study on this book. And in the study on the chapter of sex, they have really candid conversations that, that are helpful, and I recommend that to you. But within this confine and within this understanding, we owe a debt one to the other. And it's time we start paying that debt. And it's time we start engaging in this process and recognize that sex is not a shameful enterprise. Now, how do we know in the midst of this if, if we are are satisfying our spouse, and if, if, if we are being the ones who are satisfied. It requires conversation. It requires conversation. If you and your spouse are not having conversations about this, then you can't know possibly if the other person is, is happy, frustrated, um, you know, joyful, exuberant, or if they're saying, oh, this is enough for me. I, I, the pastor talked about February the 29th. I thought that sounded like a pretty solid plan. At least we have a date to remember. You need to be having conversations with your spouse. Now look at verse 4. This is where it really begins to get difficult. He says, The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And everybody in Corinth would have said, Look, we get that. Like That happens for everybody in our community. We understand that our wife has no authority over her body. We, like, we, we freely engage in this. Paul says, okay, wife doesn't have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And look what he says, though. He says, likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Now, this would have struck them. In an incredibly patriarchal society, whereby the man, no matter how big of an idiot he is, he gets to be right, and he gets to be in charge, the, Paul writes and says, the husband is in charge of the wife's body, and the wife is in charge of the husband's body. Now, what is that a picture of? It's a picture in Genesis 2.24. It says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. The mutuality 
The reciprocal agreement contained in this is this picture of the one flesh union. And so you don't get to turn to your spouse and say, look, I have authority over you. We are having sex tonight. But in the same vein, the other one doesn't get to say, I have authority over you. We are having sex every February the 29th. And not until. We have authority over one another. It requires sensitive, delicate conversations one with another. In the absence of those sensitive, delicate conversations one with another, we can never know the tremendous hurt we can bring to our spouse. The hurt of rejection. We can never know that if we're not having these conversations. The, the, kind of the puritanical moorings of our, our hesitancy to engage in conversations of sex have no place in a Christian marriage. They can have a place. Because each person has equal rights. No one gets to usurp the rights of the other. And so what happens when you have two people who who one says yes and one says no? They have to have a conversation. There has to be some form of compromise. And it's in that seeking of the compromise. It's in that those long, difficult conversations whereby we grow deeper in love one with the other. Some of us as husbands will recognize the reasons our, wife, our wives are not willing and are not ready to engage in this act is because we have wounded them terribly. And they have sought to talk to us about this. They have desired to have conversations about this. But for years, we have kept this door closed. We've not given them the freedom to criticize us in the ways we have related to them as it pertains to this. It requires vulnerability. When you get into verse 25 of chapter 2 in Genesis, one of the things it says, it says they were naked and unashamed. In the midst of this one flesh union, it's incredibly vulnerable. It's incredibly just, 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 just the tremendous vulnerability required for each partner necessitates open and honest conversation. So you have to be willing to say to your wife, when have I hurt you? When have I offended you? These are my desires. This is what I want you to hear from me. We have yet to develop the ability to have mind reading within marriage. Now, some of us can exchange a look and a glance, but mostly what that communicates is, uh-uh, not tonight. But we have yet to, ex- to develop the ability to, to have some type of look that adequately expresses all the emotional baggage that we carry throughout our marriage, right? Does any, do any of you have this? If you do, let me know. But I don't think so. And so one of the things this repeatedly requires on the husband is to go to his wife. And what this requires on part of the wife is to forgive your husband for being an idiot. There you go. Don't say amen so loudly. <laughs> Unless he's in the prayer group and then amen away. <laughs> but a husband and wife coming together for the purpose of having this intimate and most delicate of exchanges requires the terrific vulnerability and transparency where they're holding nothing back from one another. Sex is intended to bring pleasure, but it also kind of works as a test within marriage. 
if you're not having regular good sex within the confines of your marriage, it's likely that there's something else going on and you need help to figure that out. If over the course of your marriage, five, ten, six years, six months, six weeks, you, you recognize there's something that we're just not connecting here. Like we're having these open and honest conversations you're talking about, but things aren't getting any better. Then you need help outside of that. It is not embarrassing to ask someone to help. The fool looks at it and says, we'll get this taken care of. 20 years later, it's still not taken care of. You're both bitter and hateful towards one another. Sex is designed as a test, and the test reveals the level of compatibility we're having with one another emotionally and physically. Are we ready in the midst of this? And there are counselors and professionals who would love to walk through this with you and help you to navigate this so that it become what God has intended it to be. Husband doesn't have authority over his wife uh, for the purpose of forcing her into this. The wife doesn't have authority over her husband for the purpose of forcing him into this or keeping him out of this. The reason God has designed it this way is so that he might receive greater glory and honor in the midst of this conversation that the two of these have together. Look at what Paul gets to in verse 5. He says, now hold on a second, let me, let me offer this as a caveat. Do not deprive one another except perhaps for agreement for a limited time. Now what's he getting on about? What's he communicating here? He's, he's using this idea of, of deprivation. And it should communicate to us that in the midst of being married, if you are not having sex, you're withholding that, you are depriving your spouse. They are not just being a baby. You are moving against what Scripture is communicating here. And so Paul goes on to give us uh, an exception to that. Now, notice that there are medical and other reasons why you should not engage in this. I'm not going to go into those. If you have other questions, I'm happy to talk to you. But when Paul looks at it, he looks at it from the spiritual aspect. And he says there, there is a legitimate reason to refrain from this behavior. And namely what that is, is extended time spent in prayer. Notice, it's not holding a grudge against the other person. It's not, he or she didn't honor me. It's not, I'm disappointed in them. It's not, it's just too difficult. The reason that Paul is giving within this is extended time spent in prayer. He says, perhaps by agreement, so this is the husband going to the wife and saying, look, I really feel like we need to pray about this. I've been offered a job. I'm not sure if I should take it. I think we should move. I think we should downsize. I think we should do this. I think we should make this big decision as a family. The wife comes to her husband. She says, God has laid this on my heart, and he has called us to leave this place and to move to the mission field. I think we should pray. And the husband says, I think so. And so there are designated reasons in the pursuit of God whereby you would step away from this. But notice what he says. It's by agreement, and it's for a limited time. This would be a designated period of time so that you might dedicate yourselves to prayer. But look what he even uses his imagery. He says, but then come together again. Why? Why should it only be designated and short? Well, he, he begins right here, right where he started in verse 2. He says, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. You should, as a husband, desire to have sex with your wife. You should, as a wife, desire to have sex with your husband. In extended periods of absence 
and not engaging in this should create or can create issues of self-control. So this is why Paul offers this, this, this warning here. He says, Satan desires to tempt you, and it could be that if you're to have an extended period of time that you would engage in sexual immorality. And so if this is how sex functions within the confines of a marriage, the question becomes, how does sex function outside of that relationship? And so in verse 6, he offers this bridge, and he says, now as a concession, not as a command, I say this. In essence, look, I recognize that what I'm getting ready to say is not for everyone. And he's going to give us that in verse 7. He says, I wish that all were as I myself am, namely single. Paul is advocating for singleness. He's advocating for celibacy. Now, there's some discussion, there's some argument that says that Paul was likely married and either abandoned by his wife or she died due to the level that he attained to within Judaism. And we're going to talk about that. But in his current state, in his current manner of life, he is single and celibate. He's single and not engaging in sex. And so we find that a terrific number of people in our community today, in our world today, that are single, they're not married, they're not in this covenant marital relationship with someone else, but that has not slowed them down in terms of engaging in sexual relations. But Paul says, look what he says here, I wish that all were as I myself am. Paul's earnest desire was that if it were possible for all married people to suddenly be single, for all of us to be able to give all of our time and all of our resources to pursuing the Lord. But he says, but each has a gift from God. So on the one hand, I wish this was true of everybody, but I recognize it shouldn't be. Why? Because each person is to live in accordance with the gift they've been given. So what are the gifts? On the one hand, we recognize one of the gifts is certainly marriage. In, in, in sex within the confines of marriage as he's described it. But the other gift isn't just singleness. It's not like you walk up to every single person you meet, you're like, high five, good gift, right? You're like, gift, like what? Like you're fine, no. What he's talking about is the ability to exercise self-control to be content in the midst of singleness. One of the things that, one of the, one of the ways that repeatedly married people, well-intentioned, well-intentioned, I like to believe, married people fail singles in our midst and in our community is by thinking that somehow they are a less blessed person. There's something wrong. There's something deficient in you. There's something you must have done wrong. Or, it, it, you know, it's the person they walk up and they say, oh, I've got the greatest person. You just need to meet them. They have a little bit of a nail-biting thing and a body odor thing. But other than those two, okay, there's also the thing about the bankruptcy. But other than those three things, if you're in a, uh, you know, a, a well-ventilated open room with low lights, he, she is a looker. You don't have great eyesight, do you? Really a looker then. So this idea that, that we're perpetually trying to set up single people. 
We're trying to set them up because somehow we, we, we look at single people as married people and we think, oh, there's something wrong with them or they just haven't met the right person. Perhaps what we're doing in engaging in this, if you've not been invited, maybe some of you have singles that have walked up and said, hey, would you, would you help me? Would you set me up on a date? But if you've not been invited to this, then, then stay in your lane. Because it could be what we're doing in going up to somebody who's single. And so Jesse's not single, but say he was, and I'm going to go to him and be like, Jesse, you've been single too long. You're a good-looking man, and I'm going to set you up on a date. Your wife's coming back. Watch this. I'm going to set you up. You already have kids. It's fine. It worked. I'm just saying, maybe I'm a savant. But, but it could be that in the midst of, of trying to set people up, what we're doing is introducing the opportunity for them to no longer be content. Because we're questioning the gift that God has given them. If every time we see a single person, we take it upon ourselves to set them up, to hook them up, so that they might become some whole unit, then you radically misunderstand personhood. We need to be there to support singles. We need to have singles come into our lives so that our kids see this wonderful, beautiful picture of all that the gospel has for all of life. That over the course of our lives, not all of us will get married, and that is totally fine. But we need to support those who have no family structure outside of themselves or their extended family. We need to support them. And so we need to give our kids other aunts and uncles. We need to give ourselves other brothers and sisters in Christ to spend time to spend life with. Paul offers this as a caveat. He says, look, some of you, and, and, and notice back that their idea was this complete abstinence of sex within the confines of singleness and within marriage. And so Paul wants them to understand that even though his desire is that all would be as he is, that we need to live a life and according to the designation of the gift God has given us. And so he says, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it's better to marry than to burn with passion. The psychology, this Psychology Today article presupposes that a life without sex is not a life worth having. And I say that that puts too high a value on sex. But if you were to look at many Christian families and to have conversations with a husband and have conversations with a wife about this, one of the things we find over and over and over again is we place too low a value on sex. Within our larger community, we look at singles and we designate them as people in need of help instead of people that have received the same grace as we have and people that are journeying and conforming their life to the same image of God that we are on. Paul confronts the issue there in the Corinthian church where they misunderstand Sex, And we recognize that over the course of our lives, this becomes a repeated conversation that we have to have with our spouse. And as parents, this becomes an incredibly delicate conversation we have to have with our children. And it begins way earlier than many of us would like to believe. 
If you're not having conversations with your children, someone else will. And say that the average age that a child encounters pornography for the first time is eight. If you wait for your kid to turn 16 or 12 or 13 or to begin noticing changes in themselves, begin having conversations with them, you have waited way too long. This is, this is such an incredibly important subject, and I just, like, I, I want us to get this, and I'm really kind of, Paul and I are going to have a long conversation about why he put this in the midst of 1 Corinthians and, and, and why I ever began verse-by-verse verse preaching in the first place. But it's just such an incredibly important conversation for every family. We have an incredible opportunity to steward well this responsibility to engage in these conversations among adults and from parents to children. As a parent, can I just tell you, if you don't feel equipped to have these conversations, we would love to come alongside you to help you, to connect you to resources to have these conversations. If you, if, if, and and if, if somehow within the confines of your marriage, if you recognize and you're looking at this and you're saying, there's no, there's no uh, mutuality, there's no ability to, to do this, that we have real issues, and that's why we're not having sex. And we want to walk through those things with you. Or we want to connect you to resources and to counselors who can walk through these things with you. Part of the Christian life in the community and going through life one with another is not bailing on people when things get difficult. And recognize this, in a room this size with people of this diverse of backgrounds, there's some terrific hurt in our lives. There's some hurt. There's abuse. Some of us have been abusers. Others of us have been abused. And those problems do not solve themselves. They don't go away. They don't go away. Can I, can I make a plea to you to please see somebody and talk to somebody? Two or three years ago at Christmas, my dad handed me his brand new pocket knife and I was... I was <clears throat> going to open a toy that one of the kids got. And it's one of these toys that they just wanted to make sure there's no way somebody could steal it and make it out. And so it's got like 50 little hard plastic ties and, and things they don't make screwdrivers small enough to remove, right? And so I've got my dad's pocket knife. I'm not really sure where the story is going, so just stick with me. <laughs> <laughs> this might not go anywhere. Cut the feed. And so uh, I've, I've got the pocket knife, and I'm there, and this, this is the sharpest pocket knife known to man. This thing is outlawed in like 37 countries and should be outlawed everywhere else. And so I'm like pressing harder than I really need to, and it goes through, and no big deal. I'll close the pocket knife and hand it back to my dad, hand the toy to Bryce. I'm just kind of doing this number. I look down, and my pant leg is red. That's weird. Pant leg's red. And I look, dadgummit, my pants are torn. I must say, man, your, your knife cut straight through my leg, uh, straight through my, my pant leg. I wonder what little scratch I got. And so I lifted up my pant leg. It's this massive gaping wound. It's just like blood's just pouring out. I'm thinking, we got any Band-Aids? <laughs> and so Valerie, we ended into this conversation where she said, you need more help than you can provide yourself. And I said, I need one of those butterfly band-aids. I've seen so many Patrick Swayze movies. Like you push it together, you put it on there. I may have to shave my leg a little bit. I've been looking at swimming anyway. And so I just put that on there. I put the band-aid, the butterfly band-aid on there. And I stood up and he goes, pew! 
and it shoots off. I'm like, I need a bigger butterfly Band-Aid. And so I go to Walgreens. I'm like, how big a butterfly Band-Aid do you have? She said, sir, how big is your cut? And I was like, this is none of your business. How big a butterfly? <laughs> and so it took a butterfly Band-Aid and to wrap my leg, and I didn't have to go to the doctor. But I had this really gnarly-looking scar on my leg. I was not equipped to handle that on my own. Some of the issues and some of the hurts that, that we have seen brought to bear in our lives, we are not equipped to handle on our own. My prayer is that you'll seek somebody out, either in this room or somewhere else. You have a community that loves you, that supports you, that wants to walk with you, and can connect you to somebody who can help. Amen? Amen. Hey, let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your goodness. And I thank you that there is help for those who are hurting. And I thank you that, that you give us a community to go through the difficulties of life with. And so, God, I pray for the married couples who, man, this is not in any way, shape, or form described or depict what their lives are like. And, and they're not content with that that they would find the freedom of the gospel to have conversations with one another, to show their love for one another in having difficult conversations. Father, I pray for the couples who their married life is just amazing right now, that they would, in gentleness and mercy and compassion, come alongside their friends who they know are having a hard time, to pray for them, to support them. And Father, we pray for those uh, in this room who are single and, and don't desire to be. That's a gift that they don't want. And I pray that they would find contentment in the gospel, that the marrieds around them, the people around them in their lives would support them each and every day, would not make them to feel less or insignificant. And Father, I pray that we would all work together to help create and and. and maintain this beautiful picture of the gospel held in the personhood of each and every one of us. I'm thankful for you and for the gospel and for Jesus Christ who poured out his blood so that our sins might be forgiven. Help us not to sin against one another. We submit these things to you in Christ's name. Amen.